This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. Welcome to Between the Lines. Tom Switzer from RN here. It's always great to have your company. Now, later on in the show, a debate over free trade. Heavy industry has been allowed to almost disappear in this country, but it's always been important during a crisis. Should manufacturing play a larger role? We'll hear two views. But first, American presidential politics. Now, if Joe Biden wins the election at 78 years of age, he will be by far the oldest person ever to make it to the White House. No wonder he wanted a running mate who's capable of taking over the job at a moment's notice. So is Kamala Harris capable? A former Attorney General and prosecutor, she's a first-term Senator of California. She's also the first black woman on a major party ticket. Her father is a Jamaican-born Stanford economist. Her Indian-born mother was a breast cancer researcher at UC Berkeley. Eleanor Clift is a contributor to MSNBC in Washington. DeRoy Murdoch is a contributor to Fox News in New York. Eleanor, DeRoy, welcome to ABC Radio. Glad to be with you. Kamala Harris won only 3 to 4% of the Democratic primary electorate. So, Eleanor Clift, what makes her so special as a running mate? Well, she ran statewide in California three times, twice for Attorney General and uh, once uh, for the U.S. Senate. She's proven herself in the Senate to be a, a very able uh, questioner and, a, and, and serious about policy. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of people questioning her credentials to step into the job should it become necessary. But during the primaries, uh, Harris, it was widely believed, waffled uh, between pitching revolutionary change and continuity with the Obama years. DeRoy, what do you think Harris stands for? Well, I, I can't point to any major issue where I'd say, well, she's definitely the you know, person who wants to raise taxes on the rich like Bernie Sanders, or she's definitely the person who's concerned about, concerned about global warming the way um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is. So I, I don't sense that she's got uh, a signature issue, or when President Trump was running in 2016, you know, uh, build the wall. I mean, whether you agree or disagree with him, that message got through very clearly. So I, I don't really associate her with any particular signature issue where people can say, yep, she's the woman who believes, believes in X. Eleanor Clift. Well, I think she'd like to say that uh, uh, criminal justice reform is a, sig- a, a signature issue, but I agree with you. I think it's very hard to pin an ideological label on her, and, uh, you know, that's, she falls between the camps. I, I don't think you would call her an establishment figure. You certainly wouldn't call her one of the Bernie bros. So uh, I think the fact that she kind of has a you know a foot in various different camps and is hard to pin down is, is an asset as she's running for vice president. And as, as um, a former vice president Biden made clear, he wanted somebody who shared his sort of overall strategic outlook. They could differ on, on tactics. So I don't see that she has uh, such a rigid worldview uh, that she's not going to uh, be able to adapt well to the vice presidency. I think, I think that all bodes well for the relationship. Well, during the Democratic primary debate, uh, Harris did clash with Biden. It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. Now, Harris criticised Biden for working with some segregationist Democrats to oppose busing. This is the practice of moving children around schools. 
You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Kamala Harris slamming Joe Biden late last year. Uh, Deroy Murdoch, uh, tell us more about Biden's history with race. Yeah, I think that uh, I imagine what the Republicans are probably doing as we speak is putting together uh, radio and uh, TV ads where you're going to either see or hear uh, Kamala Harris making that exact point. And they're probably going to go through uh, some of his history back in the 1970s when he was otherwise a very liberal uh, U.S. senator. But uh, he was one of the people who was working very hard to uh, stop uh, school busing. He, in fact, he uh, supported uh, a, uh, an amendment which was inter- introduced against uh, busing uh, sponsored by none other than Robert Byrd, who's a former uh, exalted cyclops in the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, that measure actually passed with the support of Biden. Uh, he spoke out very forcefully against uh, busing. And he also had an amazing comment. He said that in 1977 about desegregation, I'm quoting, unless we do something about this, my children are going to grow up in a jungle. The jungle being a racial jungle with tensions having built so high that it's going to explode at some point. Um, so he's, uh, you know, I think there's audio of some of these things. There's certainly these, these uh, comments are in print, and they certainly could be put into various uh, ads and announcements and so on. And my guess is that the Republicans are going to make uh, as much noise about that as possible. Eleanor, that doesn't sound like a very progressive, inclusive candidate, but does the Kamala Harris pick uh, soften the hard edges? Eleanor? I'd like to put uh, some of what was just said into context. Uh, the debate was about forced busing. Uh, and a lot of people, black and white, were opposed to forced busing, which uh, was ended. And um, I don't know if the president is going to dredge all that up from 40 years ago. I don't know exactly who he's appealing to. I expect he's going to try to suppress the black vote. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult. I think uh, Kamala Harris does signal uh, the new America that... uh, the former vice president, now soon to be the Democratic nominee, is much more in tune with than the uh, Trump-Pence ticket. And the fact that she took on Biden, I think, um, early in the primaries with what was seen as a phony issue because the busing program she participated in as that little girl was a voluntary uh, program, uh, which is very different from uh, the way she framed it. And it did alienate a lot of people in the Democratic Party who thought that was an unnecessary fight. But uh, time heals wounds, and uh, it's pretty clear that that Vice President Biden was able to see this as just politics, as she put it, and um, sees her as an asset on the ticket. And um, his ability to work with segregationist uh, senators back in the day you know, to pass anything in Congress, you do have to get votes from people you don't automatically agree with. And these were segregationist Democrats he was working with. Now, I think in the in the mood of primaries, when you've got much more progressive energy uh, in the Democratic Party, uh, nobody wants to hear about deal-making across the aisle. Uh, but that is still, I think, um, uh, Joe Biden's hope that he can somehow, uh, if the Democrats do capture the Senate, that he can somehow find enough Republicans to work with 
on Capitol Hill. Now, Joe, Joe Biden is, of course, the heavy favourite to be the next president, yet the media have barely paid attention to what he will do if he wins. Unlike Trump, who faced Chris Wallace on Fox News and the Australian journalists, of course, Jonathan Swan, Biden is shielding in a basin. Uh, DeRoy Murdoch, why hasn't Biden been subjected to much media scrutiny? Well, I think he's not put himself in a situation really to be scrutinised. He's not uh, given that many uh, interviews. Uh, he has given some interviews that have blown up in his face, uh, such as when he was on uh, on air with this uh, radio host who goes by the interesting name of Charlemagne uh, the God. And in that interview, uh, Biden said, I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. And uh, he had to spend uh, several days cleaning up that that uh, that mess in aisle five. Uh, and I think you, I think even people who are pro Biden will concede that he's just not uh, anywhere as quick-witted or sharp as he used to be. He's, uh, I think he'll be 78 when he's sworn in. If he is elected, uh, easily he will be the oldest president we've ever elected. I think he'll be older coming in than President Reagan was on the way out. And uh, unfortunately, I think his age shows, and I think his aides know that, and they're trying to keep him uh, as much under wraps uh, in the basement, uh, you know, almost gift-wrapped for Christmas, if you will, uh, and hope that he doesn't actually get out and face somebody like Chris Wallace who'll ask him very tough questions and probably see him, uh, you know, uh, crumble under pressure on national television. But Biden's minders can't keep him out of the spotlight forever, can they, Eleanor? No, and they don't intend to. We, in case you haven't noticed, we do have a pandemic going on here, and he has been abiding by the mask rules and the no unnecessary uh, uh, But my travel. point was that Trump is doing uh, the secondly, tough interviews with I would, Jonathan Swan. I, I definitely appreciate the... Uh, the party line on the Republican side that he's in such terrible shape, you know, you're, you're lowering the expectations to the point where he's going to perform just fine. And it reminds me, I mean, I've been in Washington a long time. I remember 1980, the Carter people did a very effective job on portraying Ronald Reagan as a doddering old man, mm. movie actor who couldn't handle it. Then there was one debate, and Reagan performed pretty well. He was a charming, grandfatherly there you go again to Jimmy Carter, and that probably settled settled that race he won in a landslide. So I'd, I'd be careful about lowering the expectations and insinuating that uh, that Joe Biden is really uh, not up to it when you have a president who talks wildly about things that are not true. So uh, it depends how you measure mental acuity. I, I think it's a very dangerous tack that the Republicans are taking to try to portray. Uh, Biden and doddering because that's a very low bar he can get over quite easily. And Donald Trump showed in 2016 that low expectations are a priceless political asset. Uh, DeRoy, how much of Biden's success so far comes down to the fact that he's not Trump, uh, who's widely believed to have badly mishandled the COVID response? Well, there's a, a very strong uh, anti-Trump feeling uh, in the country. I and mean, there's those of us who want to see him reelected and those who don't want to see him reelected very, very badly want to keep him out. So uh, I, I think just being the un-Trump probably gets you to 40%, 42%, something like that, uh, just off the bat. Uh, so he's going to go in with that level of advantage. Now, can he pick up the extra 7 8% to actually win a majority? That's the big question. And uh, American elections usually are decided within that 10, 12, 15% in the middle. Uh, I think what will uh, probably make a big difference and be very much a positive for uh, President Trump is if in October, or if any of these uh, uh, vaccine candidates that we've heard about actually get approved and people are able to start getting COVID-19 vaccines uh, at their local drugstores, local clinics, what have you, I think that will uh, probably serve as a bit of a halo over his head regarding the entire COVID-19 question. 
My guests are DeRoy Murdoch and Eleanor Clifton. We're talking about American politics. Now, during the Democratic primaries, Kamala Harris, she tried to stand out on gender issues. Now, former Biden staffer Tara Reid accused Joe Biden uh, of sexual harassment. This would have been in the early to mid-1990s. Now, with rare exceptions, I think it's fair to say the media and the broader left have failed to pursue this issue, certainly as vigorously as charges against other men. Uh, Why is this the case? Eleanor Clift. Well, I disagree that the media didn't pursue it. Both the New York Times and the Washington Post interviewed scores of people and did minute-by-minute reconstructions of that era, quoting everybody. And basically, the the conclusion was that you know nobody knows quite went, what went on, if if anything. And uh, it's just it's not it's not an issue that's top line when uh, you have a pandemic that has caused 160,000 deaths so far and counting, and you have a civil rights movement and social justice movement that captured the attention of this country and that rivals uh, the transformational impact on the country in the same way that the civil rights movement of the 60s. I mean, there there are, are far bigger issues of concern here than to try to settle uh, that particular case, especially, you know, I don't think President Trump is all that keen on, <laughs> on uh, litigating a race uh, on that well, particular issue. Is that, is that a fair point, DeRoy? I mean, Trump can hardly talk here. I mean, why do you think the Me Too movement have failed to claim Biden's scalp here? Yeah, uh, I would just compare uh, the, I described as perfunctory coverage of this on the part of the established media in this in this country uh, versus the nonstop, uh, ferocious uh, Piranha-like uh, feeding, feeding frenzy that we saw surrounding the accusations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh when he was uh, named to the appointed to the uh, Supreme Court or uh, nominated, I should say, to the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh got pretty much a boxing glove in the face, okay. whereas Let- uh, Kid Glove would be about the most you could say about what hit uh, Joe Biden. Let's turn to November's election now. The emerging consensus uh, is that Biden can appeal to moderate, college-educated Republicans in the suburbs. Uh, then again, on almost Republicans, despite misgivings about Trump came home in 2016. They held their nose and they voted for Trump. Uh, What's your sense uh, uh, this November? Well, I think we're in for a a brutal campaign. And when you have a brutal campaign, a lot of people end up not liking either candidate. And in 2016, uh, voters who did not like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in the end voted for Trump. And he won that group by 17 points. The polling now of people who don't like either candidate has... Uh, those voters breaking for Biden by 58 points. The suburbs, particularly women and Republican women in the suburbs, uh, they have really uh, moved towards the Democratic column. And you know, we saw a lot of that in 2018, which is why the, the Democrats were able to, to take the majority in the House. I think if the Trump people are going to go after Kamala Harris by he, the president pronounced her nasty, Uh, You're going to see a lot of women take that personally. Or can Trump do a Nixon in 1968, this is the Pat Buchanan argument, and link the disorder and chaos on the streets to the Democrats? Roy Murdoch. Uh, I think he can. I think he might do so. And I think it becomes to be not a very difficult issue to to, uh, present. Uh, You look at Portland with, I think it's now day 73 or day 74 of of nightly uh, riots. Uh, uh, Two nights ago in Chicago, uh, a big mob went through and and tore up the uh, uh, Magnificent Mile, as it's called. This is not one of the poor 
inner city areas. This is the most beautiful shopping district in Chicago. They <clears throat> went in and uh, I think they actually drove a car into a window, went in through the broken window and stole things. Um, you look at Seattle, uh, also a Democrat-run city, total chaos there. So I don't think it's going to be too much of a stretch to say, look, you know, these are some places, uh, cities and states run by the Democrats. You see total lawlessness, disorder, uh, crime, looting, mayhem. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden has not said very much to denounce what's going on there. Uh, and if you uh, vote, vote him into uh, office, there's going to be more of that to be seen. Now, you can say that's a fair or an un unfair uh, argument, but I, I think it'll, it's, it'll be a pretty easy argument to make to make. And if the uh, kind of uh, unrest and uh, chaos we've seen lately go on on television, it's going to make it easier and easier to make that argument and point to TV, people's TV screens and say, well, uh, you know, you see what's going on on uh, your TVs. Do you want that in your neighborhood or not? If you do, vote for Joe Biden. If you don't, vote for Donald Trump. That was DeRoy Murdoch, contributor to Fox News in New York, and Eleanor Clift, contributor to MSNBC in Washington. You're listening to Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Well, when you think of globalisation, what comes to your mind? Well, for Labor and coalition governments, economic globalisation has meant liberalisation of the Australian economy to foreign competition. Remember, for instance, the big import tariff cuts in the 80s and 90s? Hawke, Keating, Howard Costello, all that. Now, there are sceptics, and they're not just protectionists, and today we're going to ask whether the COVID crisis has repudiated the liberal free market orthodoxy. This is the view that Australia has enjoyed a near 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth, essentially based on unprocessed commodity exports. That's the argument, at least. So should Australia revive our local manufacturing industry? It's an increasingly important issue. It's getting a lot of airplay. Both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese, although they express themselves in different ways, they've talked about achieving economic sovereignty over medical and other supplies critical to national security. So let's get started. Sinclair Davidson is Professor of Institutionalised Economics at RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. He's co-author of Unfreeze, How to Create a High-Growth Economy After the Pandemic. And Richard Crone is author of The Parallel University, Creating a Balanced Life and Have It All. Sink, Richard, welcome to ABC's Radio National. Hello, how are you? Very good indeed. Now, Sink, globalisation is increasingly seen as a dirty word, yet you say free trade has been a great Australian success story. Tell us more. Well, Australia has really benefited from the greater choice of goods and services that we've had in our economy. Um, if you think back to the 1980s, um, even Paul Keating was saying we're becoming a banana republic. Well, we've become astonishingly wealthy, astonishingly rich, astonishingly cosmopolitan. All the goods and services that we that we now have and enjoy are all because of free trade. And and the, the thing to remember with about free trade, it's not competition, it's cooperation. We work with foreigners in order to better meet our needs, what we want to buy, how we want to live our lives. So free trade is an awesome success story and we should stick with it. Well, Richard, uh, an awesome success story. Uh, your response to that, I mean, uh, manufacturing laissez-faire mentality, how has that worked out? Well, thanks for having me on the show, Tom. I'd first question the great success. It comes down to how you measure it, I guess. Firstly, uh, while you can buy a really cheap imported TV, I'm sure most home buyers wouldn't agree against the cheaper price tag. Um, living standards are higher than what, but at what cost? Since 2007, the federal government's borrowed over $600 billion to provide those higher living standards. 
13 years or 650 weeks, wiping out what's left in the bank. That's $1 billion per week over 13 years to, to sustain the economy. And, for, and as for a flexible economy, Adam Crichton was speaking on the CIS in 2014, noted that the unemployment figures were not a true indication of the real economy. He estimated that 49% of the population was out of, the, out of work or out of the work they wanted. And what about all the 50-year-olds being laid off and the 18 to 24-year-olds in North Queensland where the unemployment rate is 25%? There's not a lot of flexibility there. Second, there's never been a level playing field because the rest of the world has instigated non-tariff trade barriers that have ensured their competitive advantages. Yeah, well, think how would you respond to all of that that Richard says, especially that point about the removal of import tariffs, it hasn't really led to a level playing field among our competitors. You just look at Japan, Sink Davidson. Uh, there's no such thing as a level playing field. So we need to get away from this idea that somehow level playing field is what happens when we have trade. Um, we have a notion of competitive advantage. Uh, that is actually anti-level playing field. So we don't trade with people because they are just like us. We trade with people because they are different from us. So this level playing field is just pure, absolute propaganda that's been put out by the anti-free trade people. Uh, we trade because we are different, because we've got different stuff. If we had the same stuff as them, we wouldn't need to buy it from them. Um, we trade with people because they can give us different stuff at lower prices to what we've currently got. Uh, this is actually a good thing. Um, the, the, the whole notion that you know, there are so many people being put out of work. Well, that just tells us we need to be doing more. We need to be making a greater effort. We need to be pushing ourselves harder. And that always means coming back to the, the old mantra, cut taxes, cut red tape, cut green tape. The only reason why a 19-year-old can't get a job in Queensland is because our minimum wages are too high not because we are buying stuff from foreigners. Yeah, Richard, how would you respond to that argument about the competitive comparative advantage? I mean, if you go back four decades ago, 30% of the Australian workforce was employed in industry. These days, manufacturing has been reduced to something like 6 7% of the jobs base. How then can the pendulum swing back given everything that Sink has just said? Well, we need to think of the issues as a sociological problem and not simply an economic one. It's in our human nature that we want to survive. We want to feed our families and we want to have the dignity of work. The alternative suggested is modern monetary theory and the universal basic income, which destroys the meaning of life for most people. The cost to mental and physical health for that approach is just too great. So the pendulum swings back when the 50% who are underemployed or out of a job demand the dignity of work. And as Singh said, the IR um, issues are at, at, the, at the base of that. The real problem with manufacturing in this country is threefold. Firstly, the cost of overheads, energy, water, taxes, red tape. The second is the productivity that has been killed by industrial relations, occupational health and safety, CSR, ESG and litigation. And the third problem, and the third is that the main issue that has been the distribution channel and not the cost of production. A pair of boots might leave a Chinese factory for $10, but they retail for 130 
Don't need to say more. Mm. You're on our ends between the lines. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guests are Sinclair Davidson in Melbourne and Richard Crone on the Gold Coast, and we're debating whether Australia should continue to embrace what's called globalisation. Now, the Prime Minister, gentlemen, has established a task force. It's comprising union and industry leaders. It's led by the former Dow Chemical CEO, Andrew Liveris. It's designed to explore ways to rebuild local manufacturing. Now, Liveris has said, and I think this would be Richard's line, that the Australian model of being, quote, willing to export commodities and import finished goods, that's as old and broken. Now, Sink, Andrew Liveris and, and indeed Richard Crone, they talk about the imperative of redeveloping economic self-reliance in Australia, make a few things here. What's wrong with that view? Well, there's nothing wrong with making things here. There is something wrong when the government tells you what you should be making, what you shouldn't be making. Economic prosperity is created through entrepreneurship. If there are genuine opportunities to make things here, we should make them here. And if they're not, we shouldn't. Um, we, so we, we should follow the markets. We should follow what we are good at. And quite frankly, the, the, the Australian market is too small to actually build up a massive manufacturing base here and then export. So what happens in most instances, people start selling to their friends and neighbours, they start selling to the local community, and then they export. Our friends and neighbours are we're, we're too small. There's not enough Australians to actually follow that particular strategy. So we've got to be smarter than that. We have to sell stuff that we are good at to other people, what they want to buy. And what we are good at is mining, agriculture, services, um, our higher education, for example, if I can put in a plug for my own industry. Uh, these are the things that we are good at. And that's what we should keep be uh, doing and then buy stuff from other people. Yes, yeah, so Sink mentions a small domestic market here and add to that manufacturing, uh, Richard, has been bedeviled by high costs, uh, limited production runs. Given all that, how then do you, Richard, propose we revive a local manufacturing industry? Again, Tom, I look at it as a sociological problem and, and not just a basic economic one and we see three issues that need to be looked in. The first is the whole concept of inequality. After working in manufacturing for decades, I realised that the majority of people just don't want to rise to the top. I met the personal, personnel officer at BASF in 1968. He said the company had 350,000 employees and 18 levels of management. The most important point is that above the third level, there were more jobs than people to fill them. Not everybody wants to rise to the top. You need to work for those that are happy to go to work and feed their family. I believe COVID-19 is making some mm. re-evaluation of people's aspirations. How many of those that don't have great aspirations sit on the task force? How many of those that do not have the dignity of job sit on the task force? Second, make a quality product and deliver it at a reasonable cost on time, your business will th thrive. W. Edwards Demings proved that in the US and Japan. And the third major issue is that of our national morality. For how long can we demand such high standards in IR, OH&S, CSR and ESG from our own companies but turn a blind eye to the standards of our suppliers? Mm. I've called it exporting pollution and human misery. Yeah, well, Sink, I mean, I can. I mean, Richard mentions COVID nineteen. I can imagine many of our listeners here on RN, regardless of their political beliefs, they'd be asking, why should any self-respecting nation 
ever allow itself to lose a substantial manufacturing capacity or not to have substantial stockpiles of essential pharmaceuticals. And of course, this has all been brought to the surface as a result of the COVID crisis. How would you respond to those kind of um, questions and anxieties? Sinclair Davidson. Well, the first thing I would say is I completely agree with Richard in that uh, going forward, following the COVID crisis, there has to be a focus on jobs and there has to be a focus on the fact that our regulatory state is too large for the size of our economy as it now exists. Um, in terms of a manufacturing base, the, the, the COVID crisis doesn't change the fact that we are too small an economy and we literally cannot afford to pay for a manufacturing base. I mean, if, if we've borrowed a lot of money in the past, we're going to be borrowing a lot more in future to pay for this manufacturing base. So we can't afford a manufacturing base. In terms of stockpiling pharmaceuticals, this is a, a national security issue. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having stockpiles, bearing in mind, of course, is that genuine medical crises like the COVID crisis is unexpected. Um, there, there is nothing for us really to stockpile. If you'd said to us in January, let's be stockpiling ventilators, I think they were stockpiling something else. You know, so uh, again, in, in order to be fully flexible and respond to things like crises, we actually have to keep our, our borders open for trade to bring in the goods and services that we need because we can never stockpile enough for every single contingency. Sinclair Davidson is Professor of Institutionalised Economics at RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. And Richard Richard Crone is author of The Parallel University, Creating a Balanced Life and Have It All. It's by Connor Court. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer, and I hope you can tune in again next week.